The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Remember that show back then. Remember that show. Turn on the TV, time was always flying. Why did they have to end? So many shows you forgotten. Ooh, ooh. Now that we've got a podcast, we can release all the shows from our hands. Lovers, and welcome to the first episode of Remember That Show, the Retro Network's newest nostalgia-filled podcast that will have you flipping the channels of your memories and discovering vintage entertainment that's been lost to the static of time. I'm Adam Pope. And I'm William Bruce West. Each month on Remember That Show, we will discuss a different obscure or forgotten TV show from the 80s or 90s that we love, hate, or want to debate. We'll be reliving some of our favorite TV moments from the good old days and occasionally cracking the lenses of our rose-colored glasses. Oh, yes. Now, William, here's the thing. Ever since I first heard you on the Nerd Lunch podcast many years ago, I was truly impressed by your instant recall for old network sitcoms and short-lived syndicated series. It's something that I feel like I share as well, but so few places to really (laughs) indulge that. And I always wanted to have a regular forum to talk TV with you. So now my dream has come true. Uh, But since we don't have a catchy 90-second theme song to fill the listeners in on our TV-obsessed childhoods, it's only fair that we introduce ourselves kind of explain where the wasted hours of our youth were spent uh so this episode we'll be sharing our earliest tv memories from our preschool lives in a segment we're calling theme song so yeah so will let me just hear like what was the setting for your earliest childhood tv memories oh wow i was raised by tv my earliest memory and my mother doesn't believe me when i say this but i remember being in my crib watching the carol burnett show what (laughs) yes for like years i had this weird like supernatural connection to harvey corman (laughs) i was like 15 when i actually learned his name he was just this guy who always popped up and stuff and like seeing him would remind me like it's him i'm like the leo dicaprio gift file from (laughs) like it's like it's that guy from when i was in the crib so (laughs) that's my earliest tv memory that is amazing wow of all shows yeah so, I mean, for me, I think when I look back, the setting for me, I, I feel like, okay, it's early in the morning. You know, I got a four-year-old turning five this year. He wakes up at like 4.30 every morning, goes out to watch TV. It's genetic. It's got to be because that's what I would do. I would get, it was so quiet. It was so dark. I'd turn on the TV and there were the groovy ghoulies, Gilligan's Planet. Like there, there was this block of these old cartoons. There was a Lassie cartoon, I remember. Like it was just, they played them all. And, and they would alternate. And that's what I just remember like being up early and seeing all of that going on. Now, I'm curious for you also, what type of TV did you guys have growing up? Like, how would you describe the style? 
Oh, wow. Um, well, I was kind of spoiled in that we basically had a TV in every room. Like, we weren't one of those houses where we had, like, the TV. My mother always prides herself on this, that, like, there was a TV in my room when I came home from the hospital of, like, being delivered. So, like, it's been there the whole time. I remember the first one was, like, a little black and white, like, 13-inch TV. But, like, in the family room, we just had a giant tube TV up on top of like a sturdy piece of furniture we never had like a big screen we didn't have like cable honestly I didn't even have a remote control TV until maybe like 91 <laughs> you know like they were the ones you turn the dials and for the UHF and the VHF channels that was what we had yeah, well, that's interesting. It's like my family, yeah, we definitely had one TV for those early years of my life. And I just remember it was on one of the carts, but it was a very small one. I mean, this was not a large TV. You couldn't see it from very far away. We kind of had to move in close, you know? It was color. Obviously, we're living in the 80s. It's color now. But it didn't have a dial. It had those push button ones to jump oh. from channel to channel. Yeah, little silver buttons. And it was wood panel, you know, faux wood panel plastic, you know, around it. And it, I just remember like the excitement of getting in there and my family, like if we were watching together, like there weren't like TV shows that my family watched, except my dad was always watching MASH. It was always a rerun of MASH. And I'm just like, okay, I'm not watching this dad. I, I would never stick around for MASH, but we would always get like our, you know, we had our air popper going with like the super like yellow translucent you know cover on it we'd get the popcorn we'd melt the butter we'd pour it on and like so we didn't even have a vcr till like late 80s 87 you know it was like when we right. got one so so for me it was just like whatever's on is on and the family's maybe gonna watch a, a movie because it's on tv this weekend you know saturday night movie or whatever but i'm curious with your family were you guys like it was always a, a solo operation for you or did you get together with the family and watch stuff together Together. It was usually a solo operation. My mom worked a lot. So like my grandmother basically took care of me growing up. So when I was like really, really small, we watched the same things, but they weren't great things it would be like the 700 club like i knew all the televangelists like people <laughs> this is like one of those weird facts that people don't know about me where like i am benjamin buttoning when it comes to pop culture when i was three my favorite show was murder she wrote like i didn't watch cartoon i watched murder she wrote in 60 minutes and <laughs> robert tilton in the 700 club and everything that like senior citizens love and enjoy and then as i I've gotten older it's like oh what's this thing so like our generation i have no affinity for like he-man or anything like that because i just it, it passed me by like i was watching the missionaries do whatever it is they were doing <laughs> And then as, as I got older and I learned about like syndicated TV, then I just like, it was my quest to watch like every episode of everything that aired five days a week. And that's 
how it all started. <laughs> that's what I was going to say, because that's what I remember. I'd watched whatever cartoons were filling early morning slots on network TV, you know. And then the big deal for me was when we did finally get cable, basic cable, you know, we had Nickelodeon, you know, when I was like four or five. And I was just like, what is this? And that was like Danger Mouse was on there, right? And eventually Count Duckula and all those types of things. And they were weird, like international shows, you know, they weren't American cartoons. Cartoons. They were just like pulling in these syndicated series from wherever they could. And so th- that, those were really formative moments for me watching Nickelodeon because they just had so much to offer, whether it was you can't do that on television or like there's that weird show Calliope, which was like... It- like kind of a, a hodgepodge of like stories and different cartoon segments and things and that was my channel with cable like i just nickelodeon was all i needed you know i wasn't flipping over to like eventually the usa network but that wasn't until i was like you know a, a tween you know so right, right. <laughs> but the cartoons you maybe did catch in passing like what what was your main show then like that you would say is like a pop culture icon now or wasn't maybe even more obscure Honestly, they're such cliche answers, but it would have to be DuckTales or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And the reason for that was I have so many like weird life things. I carpooled with a teacher like when I was in elementary school. And since teachers have to get to school early for like prep and everything, I never got to watch the stuff that came on in the morning. But also because I carpooled with this teacher, they don't leave when the kids leave. So by the time I got home, I never got home before 4.30 or 5. So the only thing that hadn't aired yet was DuckTales or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So like until let's say middle school, I lived off like the Disney afternoon as far as daily programming because that's all I could actually see. Anything that came on at like three or anything like that, like when kids first get home, never saw it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, that was definitely the prime time, right? Where you're just like, and I remember like kindergarten, you know, it was like for me, half day kindergarten. So I'd get back and I'd have to wade through all these like reruns of, uh, what, what was the one with Jim J. Bullock? Now I'm, I'm forgetting. Oh, too close for comfort. <laughs> too close for comfort, man. You know, and, and there, there, there's be all these like weird sitcoms. So I watched a lot of Three's Company. There was a lot of that going on where I'm just like, okay, Mr. Roper, wait, who's this Mr. Furley? He's even funnier, you know, like right, that kind right. of stuff. And so I, I watch a lot of old, like, 70s, early 80s sitcoms during that period. But then, like, yeah, like, all the icons were passing through at, you know, like you said, like, 2.30, 3 o'clock to to 4.30, somewhere in there. So I'm seeing Thundercats. I'm seeing He-Man. Although, although He-Man always felt like it was an early morning in my area. He-Man would play a lot, like, in the mornings as well, before kindergarten or first grade or whatever. And then a big one for me when I would go, because I felt like it was on Nickelodeon more often than not, was uh, Heathcliff and with the yes. Cadillac Cats. And I loved me some Cadillac Cats more than Heathcliff. I was just like, oh, he's okay. But I want the Cadillac Cats, you know, segment. That's what I'm here for. Mongo and everybody else <laughs> cool i definitely so- loved heathcliff on like my sick days i was that weird kid who loved school so i didn't 
take sick days, but on the days when like I just couldn't go to school, it's like, oh, well, at least I get to see Heathcliff, you know? Yeah, yeah, th- that's definitely a thing. Now, something we'll get into next time, uh, which is what kind of talk about as we got a little bit older, getting closer to the 90s and all of that. And then I think we're going to, you know, eventually we'll talk about Saturday morning cartoons. Obviously, that's its own category altogether. And we'll talk a little bit, I think, also about Sunday morning cartoons, oh. if that was something in your area. That's something I always feel like gets neglected. But for now, I think it's time to tell everybody a little bit more about the show we're flipping the channel to this episode. But there's only so much time in your busy lives, and that's why we're going to give you the elevator pitch. So The Critic was a primetime animated sitcom starring John Lovitz as Jay Sherman, a balding, pathetic, overweight TV film critic who is unlucky in romantic adventures that take place in between tapings of his movie review show, Coming Attractions, which featured clips from imaginary film mashups. Now, The Critic originally aired on ABC in 1994, but then was canceled and it got moved to Fox in 1995, and then the series was revived many years later for an unofficial third season of webisodes online in 2000 and then of course the series ran in reruns on comedy central for like over 10 years like it was just always on and it was finally released on dvd in 2004 the complete series i think it's only like 23 episodes total so where and when did you watch the critic will i watched both seasons when they aired on both networks like I was there with ABC I was there when it moved to Fox it's one of those weird childhood like Mandela effect things where I could have sworn there were more episodes than they actually made because I felt like it did like like kind of like Punky Brewster did like I felt like it did like a couple seasons on ABC and then a couple seasons on Fox and then I didn't even know about the webisodes till researching for this episode so now I have to track those down but like I was really into it because like today we take it for granted that we have all these primetime animated shows but at that point it was the Simpsons and then no one was really trying to do that again like today you have a hit and then you just do clone and clone and clone of it but there weren't a lot of people racing to compete with the Simpsons or even get like their slice of that pie I remember like Family Dog on CBS briefly and things like that so like when the critic came along it's like okay this is something different and it was very like pop culture centric we still really kind of love John Lovitz at the time he wasn't that far removed from SNL you know and it just like one thing that really stuck out to me was it was one of those rare things that I think my mom watched an episode and, and she really liked it and I was always trying to like find these common threads of like, oh, we both enjoy this. We can watch this together. This sounds like a really bad therapy session. But it was like, (laughs) one thing I learned was she was never into series. So it's like, she might see an episode of a show and think it was funny. But if I would go back next week and say like, hey, the critics on again, remember you really liked that. It was like, oh, okay. You know? (laughs) So it was like, I was constantly looking for those things. And that was one of the earliest I can remember of like, 
oh, she really liked the critics. So it was like, I'd turn it on, like, hey, mom, the critics on. Like, okay, I'll be down in a minute. And then I'd end up watching it, you know? So like, I watched both seasons. And also, I feel like even though it was just two years in two different networks, I feel almost like it was the beginning of 94 and maybe like the very end of 95. Because back then, you know, we didn't have the internet or like anybody reporting on TV show renewals and things like that outside of TV Guide. So there would be shows, the one I always think of as Perfect Strangers, where there are like three different instances where I could have sworn that show was done and canceled. And then it would pop up like eight months later to fill in during the summer. And that's how I felt like the critic was. Like whenever I thought it was down for the count, it was back, but apparently just 23 episodes. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, we we talked about that we were going to be discussing like obscure shows or forgotten shows. I think there's a fair amount of people that remember The Critic, but at the same time, it's one of those things that I don't know if people remember, like you said, from that initial run, because I definitely tuned in. I remember being there on ABC. Oh, there's this new show. I'm going to watch it. When it was on Fox, especially because he had the crossover episode with The Simpsons. And so it was kind of the lead into that. And then I was like, okay, but I wasn't devoted to it. It didn't pull me in a hundred percent. And so like, I, I would catch it when I caught it, but it wasn't appointment television for me. And then years later, I got into this weird period before streaming was a thing when Netflix had just started and DVDs were red hot. I was like, on oh, this mission, okay, I'm going to catch up with all these shows. I was buying every Simpsons DVD release and all of that. And so I went looking around, you know, on eBay and I found the critic for sale on DVD, but it was just the discs, not like the set. It wasn't sealed. It wasn't in the cases. And I was like, did somebody steal these from Netflix? <laughs> well, I don't care. I'm buying them because they're cheap. And so I bought them their official release you know they have the labels on them and everything i actually i ended up making my own boxes yeah and so so it was all three seasons or all you know two seasons of the webisodes and so i watched it again but i haven't touched them since this time and i would say that was probably like 2007 or something where i was just kind of like ah okay i've revisited that so we're gonna get into what i thought but i still i feel like we really have to set the scene for this time so why don't you take us into our next segment here well you know tv shows don't just appear out of nowhere i mean there's usually some trend or fad in pop culture that inspires the network to fund a pilot episode and they give test audiences a look hoping it'll capture the zeitgeist and give them a place to sell commercial ad time for big bucks i mean that's what they're there for so in this segment we're going to explore what was going on in the world of entertainment in 1994 that allowed the critic to hit airwaves we're going to examine why it was given the green light That's right. So here's the thing. The Simpsons really did feel like it was overnight sensation. 1990 was really like this huge year of like Simpsons on every magazine cover, every bootleg t-shirt that you could find and all these things. I actually have a a booklet that is a a Simpsons merchandise thing. And you look at it, you're like, wow, they eventually got there. But at first they didn't have enough. Like people were scrambling for Simpsons merchandise. So it really was this thing that everybody wanted a piece of. And, you know, as you said, like you would think everybody would want to jump on the animated primetime deal, but 
it takes a long time to make an animated show, to develop it, to record it. But the animation itself could take, you know, years. Like if you ever listen to like the Simpsons DVD commentaries, they'll tell you like we were working on this episode a year before, you know, and here's what we ran into. But there were shows that did manage to kind of eke in in 92, 93 of varying quality. So, you know, you mentioned Family Dog on CBS. There was Capital Critters on ABC in 1992, which is one that was so bizarre to me because I had one of the Kenner Action Guide booklets that to- showed you all the toys and they had Capital Critters toys. And I was just like, I've never seen this show. What is this? And then there was even Fish Police, which was an adaptation of a comic book. And that was an animated series as well. So they tried to do it, but it just felt like irreverent animated comedy was going to be the hot new trend. People were trying to get there. You look at that and then you look at Jay Sherman is a film critic. What can you tell us, Will, about the film critics of the era, the power that they wielded? (laughs) Oh my goodness. I mean, there were only two. Well, I mean, up top you got Siskel and Ebert. They ruled the roost. But then you had like your Gene Shallot, who's just kind of like a character over here. And then you had your low-key, respectable Leonard Malton. But ultimately, like the the influencers before we use the term influencer <laughs> were Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, and they were huge. Like it was it like everybody knew the thumbs up, thumbs down thing. That was just like two thumbs up. Like that was the the highest rating that any movie could receive. It's like I got two thumbs up, we gotta see that and everybody will rush out to the theater and yeah they had this weekly show where they would literally like just run down the movies and tell you if they thought it was worthwhile and it's it's just crazy to think that there was a period in which there were just two singular opinions that could have that much influence on what was going to sell tickets and uh, that just yeah there was so many different places now for everybody to just be in their little their little zone their little pocket they will support it however they can but the thing i want to mention too is so the simpsons was huge but when matt graining found out about the critic he wasn't thrilled. He originally assigned the showrunners, Al Jean and Mike Reese, who had just come off these really hot uh, seasons of The Simpsons. Like they were the ones who really cemented what The Simpsons would become. Because before it was like James L. Brooks really kind of said, hey, we're doing traditional family sitcom with a little bit of an edge. And now like they're like, they're kind of a little wackier in seasons three and four and all that. But Matt Groening wanted them to do a live action Krusty the Clown show. That was the original oh. idea. Dan Castellaneta was going to play Krusty crusty and then they would have these weird parody things happening it was it was bizarre and so that didn't happen and through a series of other projects they eventually ended up making the critic like it was just like okay now this is the form it's taken and james l brooks is 100 behind it matt graining is not so much so that because a lot of people from the simpsons were on there you know nancy cartwright is it and like the animators and writers and all these people and so when it got canceled on abc he was probably like okay good it's over with but then it's coming to fox and now it's going to air after the simpsons and now you want to do a crossover episode and that is the only episode of the simpsons where matt graining's name does not appear in the opening credits really yeah he removed his name i remember seeing that as a kid and being like huh and then i have the dvd set and i re-listened to the commentary and you watch it and you're like yep it says you know james l brooks and sam simon and matt grading it's just blue screen it's gone you know wow <laughs> he was that opposed to it he didn't want anybody to think whether the show was a success 
or it failed that he was involved because he's like, this is not a Simpsons spinoff. This is nothing that I okayed, but everybody involved with me is doing their thing over here. So that was that was a big deal for him. So now that we kind of have the idea of why a film critic would be the star of a show. It's kind of the same with Frasier, right? It's like, why would a talk radio psychologist be the, you know, the focus of a sitcom? Well, that was huge in that era, in the late 80s, early 90s. So, but anyway, uh, we know now, we've talked about it several times, the critic ran for multiple seasons. So we want to kind of explore that during those seasons, what was there to like about the critic? And as TV Guide used to say, when they highlighted the best of TV in their pages, we're going to raise our glasses and say cheers so well when you think about the critic whether you were watching it by yourself whether mom's right beside you on the couch what was it that you enjoyed about the critic I liked the humor because it had like sort of an edge to it <laughs> to use thinly veiled like speech these days. It, it was a very New York humor <laughs> that you really didn't get from like a lot of shows. Like it had like a sharp wit to it. And also one thing we didn't really discuss with the Siskel and Ebert part, but the reason Siskel and Ebert were so powerful, I felt was because at this point, there was something of like a Hollywood renaissance going on. I mean, sure, we got a lot of great like blockbusters from that era, but it was also kind of like the old days of like the studio system. Like there were these storied brands that were like taking themselves like seriously, like Warner Brothers. I don't know if it was like an anniversary era for them, but like they were killing it between like children's animation the live action batman like late 80s early 90s was just something of a like it seemed like hollywood had uh, a second wind it was disney was getting back into animation through the little mermaid and it just there was this swirl of frenzy around hollywood so i thought like a show like this kind of set in that world that is revolving around it because he's looking at like oh look at this this crazy new blockbuster coming out and it's like it's funny because it's absurd like he would review a movie like Sharknado but it was close enough to the truth that you're like yeah it's not that far off you know so in a lot of ways it was relatable but also still managed to be absurd yeah I mean I think that's very true it did feel like you know the 90s were a time when everybody was going to the theater you saw everything whether it was a drama whether it was a comedy whether it was the latest Disney animated feature. Like you said, everybody saw everything. You know, and a lot of kids were probably seeing these, you know, adult dramas they should have been seeing, but it was, if you heard the recommendation from your neighbor, the whole family's going to go see it. Like Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I shouldn't have seen that movie when I was nine years old, but my mom's co-worker said, oh, it's not that bad. And it's really fun. He's going to love it. You know, and I was like, yeah, let's go. You know, it was like the only R-rated movie my mom ever let me see, you know? So it, it was that, it was that type of thing where it was just like, yeah, just it was a movie culture for sure in a very different way than we're movie culture now where we're all like you know the the armchair quarterback armchair executive you know we're coming in and saying oh we know how movies work we know about the box office we know the decisions behind the scenes we all think we're informed back then it was just like we're all consumers and we're gonna we want to be caught up in the moment
it. That's how I felt. Like, did focus on film nerd culture, right? If you love movies, you'd get all the inside jokes, whether it was film history or the cutaway gags, you know, to to certain scenes that they would parody and things like that. But you also brought up earlier John Lovitz. He's got such a distinct voice. So even if the jokes didn't land, his delivery would sometimes sell it. We got to talk a little bit more about like, what were we loving John Lovitz from in this era? Because he was just popping up everywhere. Oh my goodness. I was a little sheltered in terms of movies. Like I know he was in a lot of stuff back then, but over the course of this show, you're going to be appalled at the movies I haven't seen yet. (laughs) So like, but I was hardcore into SNL during this era, even though like I shouldn't have been the age. Like they're all... SNL is my Simpsons, where there are people who will say like, oh, it sucks now. It's not as good as it was when we were kids. But I've loved every era. Every era has its like pluses and minuses. But like I was really into it at this point. So it was just really cool of like, oh, I know that voice, you know. (laughs) There was this weird movie, Mom and Dad Save the Universe, where he plays this like alien overlord kind of guy. And then there was A League of Their Own. He had like a role in that. And of course, like we had heard him on The Simpsons as Artie Ziff. And then also as Marge's art teacher. And then also as the director, Llewellyn, what's his face? It was during a streetcar named Desire, the musical, you know, like all these things. And so like, he was just like a, a presence. And then the other thing too, I want to mention is it's centered around John Lovitz, but then you got to say, okay, were there good supporting characters? Like, were there people? Cause the, again, this, if you compare it to the Simpsons, which is the thing you kind of have to do, it's like, it was that supporting cast that really enriched watching every episode. So I thought that Jay's son, Marty is very, very, sweet like he brought a lot of heart to the show that it really needed because of the style of humor he was kind of like a proto bobby hill from king of the hill yes kind of timid but also like insightful and could see what was going on in the world but he was voiced by christine cavanaugh who was the voice of chucky on rugrats so if the voice kind of sounds familiar that would be why but did you have another like supporting cast member that always stuck out to you oh boy I think the supporting cast, it was to its benefit, but also somewhat detrimental looking back on it. Because at times I felt for a show that was supposed to be in like Hollywood, it was very insular. Like I didn't think it really branched out of his supporting cast. But the one that I always think of is his boss, Duke. And why can't I remember her name? The the makeup lady. Doris. Yes. Like when I think of just random scenes from that show that are not Jay Sherman by himself, it's usually a Duke Phillips scene. Yeah. Charles Napier is the guy who did that voice. And you know, Charles Napier's face, like you've seen him in like everything. He's, he's always like playing like generals or tough guys, you know, this guy. I, it's weird. I always think of him from the Incredible Hulk Returns, the one where he teams up with Thor. Charles Napier plays the Cajun uh, like criminal. You're just like, what is this guy's deal, man? Charles Napier doing a Bayou style villain. But you, he actually reminds me when you look at him now, like uh, I know a lot of people would say like he's a Ted Turner parody, but he reminds me of Jimmy James from News Radio. Yes. He's like the eccentric millionaire boss. He's got crazy crazy ideas. He just wants them implemented. No questions asked. He doesn't care about artistic integrity. He thinks this is going to increase ratings or whatever. So whether it's the shermometer or whether he's putting Jay in a cabin set. 
wedding, like just like weird things that he would come up with or, you know, just network ideas, you know? So I, yeah, I, I think he was a fantastic character. But the uh, last one I just want to highlight, who I think was the breakout star of this series, is Garrett Graham as Jay's dad, Franklin, because... They mentioned in the first episode that he had a stroke. And so now he just like spouts off the wall comments. He just like does all these non sequiturs. But does Garrett Graham ring a bell for you from TV? Because he did a lot of TV work. The name sounds familiar just because, I mean, how many people do you know named Garrett spelled that way? (laughs) But nothing really comes to mind. What am I missing him in? So Parker Lewis can't lose. Okay. Yeah, I believe it was second season. Might have been end of the first, but he was Dr. Pankow. And he was like the rival principal who eventually takes over the school for Miss Musso for a few episodes. Like he was, he was kind of this villain of the series. So that's what I remember him from, but he was on like the new WKRP in Cincinnati. He was in like a lot of, a lot of sitcoms here and there, but he was also, again, it's probably a movie you haven't seen, but Phantom of the Paradise. He plays this crazy like rock star guy named Beef. Supposed to be like a meatloaf parody, I think. But he's just oh, called- I know this guy. You yeah, look at no. his face, and you're like that face. Okay, he, he's he's in that like Terry Kaiser category, where it's like you know his face, and you're like, oh, it's that guy again. But very <laughs> few people know Terry Kaiser's name, even though there's Weekend at Bernie's. So. Yeah, I I got his his autograph at RetroCon last time I went. I was great to talk to him and chat with him. But the one joke from Franklin Sherman that is the only joke I ever remembered from the series. It was the only thing that stood out to me was there's a scene where he's flying a plane and his co-pilot is a penguin. And at a certain point, the penguin is flying and he bounces off like this hill and runs into this stuff. And then Franklin's giving him a hard time. He's like, wah, wah, wah. And he's like, I don't care how many stewardesses you've bagged. You're a lousy pilot. <laughs> And it's just like, man, I'm just having this argument with a penguin. It cracked me up. Uh, But what did you think about the animation style? Did you think that was a plus? Was that in its favor? I didn't think it was detrimental. Honestly, yes, I think it was in his favor. Because, like we were saying before, at that point, the only thing you're really going to compare it to is The Simpsons. And while The Simpsons are, like, humanoid enough, there's still those issues of, like, why are they yellow? And what's up with their hair? But, like, the critic, its animation style is pretty straightforward, but it doesn't go as far into the abstract as say like a Bob's Burgers. I have said before that I have this like this personal rule that I don't like animation where I'm not able to tell when a character is supposed to be attractive. <laughs> and, and that sounds really weird because people get these like they go off on these like branches of like what's that about? That's that's kind of creepy. But no it's just like Bob's Burgers. They're all kind of ugly characters. But like in the critic you could tell like oh that woman is supposed to be attractive which is why it's weird for her to talk to Jay, who is conventionally unattractive. Like, it's important for character dynamics. So I enjoyed the animation style of the show. How about you? I think the quality of the animation, like, just like, you know, it's 
very technical, but like the frame rates like really add to smooth character movements. Like it wasn't cheap. A lot of these animated primetime sitcoms looked terrible. They didn't have the time probably to get it done in these early days. And I think that the critic looks great. The, yeah, like you said, the, the character designs are exaggerated. They look like they were pulled from like the New Yorker magazine or like, you know, really upscale political style, you know, comics, you know, one panel gags. Like that's what they all feel like they're a part of. So I feel like it isn't something you point out and say that looks terrible. That would never be a criticism I have of the show. I think the backgrounds and everything are very lush. Those are the good things about it, unless there was anything else you wanted to add. Was there something else that jumped out at you? No. I just feel like one of the best things about it is even though it's not a show that I can quote like I can like a Seth MacFarlane property, it still made quite an impact in just the short amount of time it was around. You know, like I still think that like it stands up to the people who were like of a certain age at that time. They remember it being funny even if they can't say like, oh, on episode three, you know, it's just, it's not a very like you can't cite it but you just remember like it making you laugh and that's that's not the worst legacy to have yeah it's far from forgettable that is for sure Hey there, TV fans. Adam, stopping the flow of the show here for just a second to say a big thank you for checking out our first episode. And for being there at the beginning, we wanted to offer you the opportunity to win a complete series DVD set of The Critic. Yes, this is being sponsored by the Retro Network. So, how do you enter, you might be asking? Well, all you have to do is send an email to me, hojukoolander at gmail.com. That's H-O-J-U-K-O-O-L-A-N der at gmail.com subject line critic contest and if you want to just type in there it stinks to the body of the email then i will know that you listened to this part of the episode and you want to win we'll select a winner from all the entrants on september 15th we'll notify the winner and announce it on social media so everybody knows who's going home with the big prize but again thank you so much for joining us for our first episode and hey let's get back to it I think in our next segment, we might uh, talk about some of the things that uh, made us remember it on the other side. So why don't you take us into that? I mean, we've talked about what we liked, but the show obviously didn't last. So there's plenty of reasons for that. So now it's time to go from the roaring applause of cheers to the raucous boos of jeers. Boo! Boo! The reason I pick this as the topic for our first episode is a little while back, couldn't sleep, kids woke me up and I couldn't get back to bed. And as I'm just laying there, I was thinking about the critic. It just came to mind. I kept saying to myself, I mean, I remember it. I kind of liked it. And then I really started thinking about it. I was like, no, I don't think I do like it. I think, I think there's something about this show that is deep inside of me and it's been burning a hole in my gut uh, for a while. And I that's why I've distanced myself from it. Because th- this is the first thing that I think is to its detriment, like just from concept. And that is Jay Sherman is a monster. 
Like literally in the universe of the show, people on the street gasp or groan at the sight of him. They make fun of his appearance constantly, or they literally downright hate him. They loathe him. And you could say like, oh, but he's a misunderstood mutant. You know, he's just like, he's this crazy creature. You look down on him, but but you feel bad for him. But the showrunners, you know, Al Jean, Mike Reese, they created a character. He's not just an underdog. You know, he's unlikable. He's pompous. He is literally gross. Like, they seem to hate the concept of a short, overweight, balding coward. And it just makes me wonder, why did they create him? Why did they make this character the star of their show if they are going to loathe him in the very way they present him? Like, the Simpsons characters or Seinfeld, like, they are all terrible in their own way, but at least in the case of the Simpsons, they all have good hearts that seem to break through by the end of an episode. But Jay Sherman, as a character, he's pathetic. He has no redeeming quality that I can find other than he is sometimes portrayed as a loving father to Marty, but usually as a loser father who's tried to give advice that maybe doesn't pan out. So what do you think about that? (laughs) I mean, those are all good points, but I never thought of it that way. I will say it it was a choice. It was a bold choice to make him the star of this show. I get that it's the critic and that's what he does and that's what it's about, but he is very much a supporting character thrust into the spotlight. It's like you said, he's not likable, but I never loathed him. I just kind of felt sorry for him. And I guess there were times where maybe I related to him, but looking at it now, it's almost like building a family guy spinoff around Meg or like (laughs) building a a, a Seinfeld spinoff off around George like we all love George but you kind of need the Jerry for the crazies to orbit around and then Jerry's got his own crazy but like everybody (laughs) on Reddit threads there's the whole like designation of like ESH like everyone sucks here if like they're trying to figure out who's the hero or the villain in a story I don't remember anyone being particularly likable except for the son yeah and and there were times that i kind of felt bad for him like how did you get into this situation in fact now that you bring this up it's really similar to a current series on adult swim called royal crackers that's about this like family that they're like a saltine cracker dynasty and they're trying to keep it alive but they're so consumed with like status and the business and everything like everybody's horrible except they have this misunderstood teenage son a lot like jay had here where you end up by the end of the season like well he's the only redeeming thing about this thing and you're right like it's odd that they would put him there but i think because it was a I hate to hide behind this, but it was a different time. Like, we really are encouraged to look down on this guy. Like, we're supposed to bond as an audience on our shared disdain for Jay Sherman. That is the thing, because if it's not his attitude, if it's not his, you know, literally like the reactions to him, the biggest fault of the show, the biggest crutch they go to again and again are the fat jokes. The hook of the show is film-related gags. That's what it is. But the choice to make literally like half of the jokes each episode about Jay's like voracious appetite, his plump body getting stuck somewhere, his seemingly unwieldy weight is hurting people, like just whatever it is, like his weight is, is, is the gross 
looseness of his body and everything like he's gonna run that's not slow motion but his body is jiggling and moving like now am i extra sensitive because i was a fat kid at the time yes the jokes you know about his weight they may they may have felt like cannon fodder for my bullies if they had been even watching the show but you could say okay it makes it so the show hasn't aged well but i think it's antithetical to the comedic focus of the series to do like these highbrow for the most part i would say deep cut film jokes and then to go to a fat joke again comparing it to the simpsons homer simpson is a glutton he had struggles with his weight in early seasons and those would be plot points of an episode but they didn't dehumanize him like ultimately he was still a father ultimately he was still you know like a guy trying to make his way in the world but jay if you were to say like what is he he's a fat freak who sometimes talks about movies like that's how i feel about the character when i watch it and it just it feels like that just breaks the series for me in such a big way that i'll be like oh that was funny when they did that joke about arnold schwarzenegger movies you know and then it goes over to a fat joke and i'm just like guys that can't be the only thing you know about this character that you can make fun of but also why are you making fun of your main character constantly (laughs) right right i mean i mean Wow. I was also an overweight kid. I mean, I'm an overweight adult. So, like, I guess that was kind of what I saw in in the character. But, like, to take it to another place, and, like, as we talk about it, I'm just kind of thinking, like, maybe that was the joke that we didn't get in that... Like, the show could have been called anything. Like, he could have been, like, a film critic, and it could have been, like, at the movies. Or it could have been, like, Jay goes to the movies, or anything like that. But it's the critic. And if you really analyze that, it comes down to the joke or the irony is, who is this person, this just sad sack of whatever to criticize or judge anything deemed as art for the masses. You know, I could be getting way too deep for early 90s Fox or (laughs) ABC, but like, I mean, looking back at it now, if, and I know we'll get to this, but like in a modern lens, that is how I would approach this series. That's a valid point. Now, a lot of the the Simpsons writers were Harvard graduates and they they are very highbrow in their comedy, which again was why I was so surprised there were so many fat jokes. But to me, like it could be, yeah. Like the joke is he's the critic, but the world criticizes him constantly. So like, but he's, he's not getting, you know, the, the message he's not being humbled by it. So I just don't, I don't know that they ever made it clear if that's what they wanted it to be. Like there could could have been at some point, like where they, they really broke that down, but I have another one here. I I know I got, I got a long list, but it's not too long. I'm, I'm almost done. So you mentioned that you liked that it was so unique that it was this upper class class New York setting. Like it's kind of this world, this high society that was unfamiliar to you, but interesting to you. Was that how you were saying it or? I liked it, but I'm a snob. (laughs) (laughs) You yourself are a snob. Okay. So it's like, I, I think I know where you're going with this and that it's just, it's not relatable to the 
average American audience. Like it's it's too niche. It's niche of niche. But I'm backing yeah, well, up. <laughs> well, well, no, it, it, you're very right there because, for example, again, looking at another sitcom of the era, Frasier. Getting back to that, it, it's like Frasier if he was obsessed with movies instead of opera and fight art and wine and literature and, and all that. But as a California kid, yeah, I'm in you know maybe an upper middle class city, but I'm on the the lower middle class side of it. I couldn't relate to the high society waspy family that Jay comes from, which he obviously is not, but everybody in his circle kind of is. And the thing that hits me is like, they're basing everything around Woody Allen film interpretations of New York City. That's their basis. So already it's just like, yes, he was a popular filmmaker, but he wasn't a populist filmmaker. It wasn't like a Steven Spielberg world. It's an, a Woody Allen world. And he was like, okay. Right, right. Which wasn't, it wasn't appealing to the masses. It was yeah. like that era safety film, you know? Like, <laughs> and then like, again, when I look at the Bundys, the Tanners, the Winslows, like I recognize that type of lifestyle, that living immediately. But Manhattan-based artsy-fartsy intellectual apartment dwellers, you know, it, it didn't appeal. But like, even again, we talked about was the joke on the critic? Was that the point of the show? But if you look at Frasier, Niles and Frasier's pursuit of intellectual societal status, that was mocked constantly by their everyman dad. Martin is sitting in an easy chair and like, oh, you kids, what are you doing? You know, and the critic doesn't have a blue collar character that takes the air out of Jay's pompous sails or anybody else in his orbit. It's just like, nope, this is where they are. And aren't they ridiculous? But you're just like, mm, we need some in. We need one right. person we can relate to, not just this little kid, you know, who's very sensitive and smart. Or Jay's sister wasn't bad either, voiced by, you know, Nancy Cartwright. She's a nice person, but she was boring. So you're just like, there's nothing here. But what do you think? Like, is that one of the things that you feel maybe led to its lack of ratings? Like, if people saw that, there's like, there's nothing here for me, ultimately. And before you answer to that, I do just have to clarify for the sake of accuracy, setting the proper picture. James L. Brooks, in the commentary for the A Star is Burns episode where Jay Sherman guest starred on The Simpsons, he says specifically that the critic was a rating success on Fox when it arrived, but unfortunately when they got there, the deal had been made with a previous head of TV at Fox, who was now gone by the time the show premiered, so they were kind of doomed. It was just like, we're going to let you run your episodes, but we do not want this. This wasn't my idea. It's a story that happens in Hollywood all the time. The executive just kind of cleans the slate from all the projects okayed by their predecessor. But also, if it was that big a hit, if it had been a ratings juggernaut, they would have kept it regardless. So there was something there. So do you think that it did lack mass appeal? Oh, definitely. Like, it's not very accessible. It's the kind of show that's a dime a dozen now. But when it came out, we weren't used to that. We, we didn't know what to expect from that. The audience just... We weren't as cynical then. Everything was extreme and blue raspberry. We didn't have time to be sarcastic. <laughs> but like, you're you're definitely right. It, it was a very niche show. And what I was saying was like niche of niche in that like the Hollywood renaissance thing that I was talking about earlier. While the masses got swept up in it, 
it was a particular person that cared how the sausage was made. And that population's a lot smaller than the masses. But that is the population that this show was for. In terms of its humor, I've had this conversation with people before and they never really know what I'm talking about, but I still stand by it. So let's see if it works here. <laughs> when Tiny Toons Adventures started, it was not a Fox Kids show. It was syndicated. That first syndicated season tended to air on like Saturday afternoons given your market and it was paired with like schlock like what a dummy or like the Harry and the Henderson show and stuff like that like it wasn't for kids if kids happened to watch it it wasn't offensive but like there are very I'm not gonna say mature jokes but it's like kids didn't know or care who Steven Spielberg was the fact that it's Steven Spielberg's Tiny Toons Adventures that meant nothing to a 10 year old but his parent was kind of like oh that, that's interesting that'll bring me in that first season is very chock full of Hollywood in jokes yeah whether they're making fun of Planet Hollywood or like Robin being a decoy sidekick or anything like that it's when it moves to Fox Kids that it gets a little more kid-friendly, kid-centric. And I think that the critic in his two seasons are in that same column as Tiny Toons season one. And that didn't work, which is why it was retooled. And the critic would have needed to be retooled. It doesn't fully know how to reach the masses. Yeah, I mean, th that that's a very good point. Because I think what they did is they kind of sabotaged themselves. Because I'm sure they said, we can't make this look exactly like The Simpsons. We have to make it its own thing. But I think David X. Cohen and Matt Groening, eventually they learned a lesson from going too far. Because with Futurama, which is infinitely more entertaining than the critic, the Futurama character designs are just a smidge off from The Simpsons. You know, the characters have normal skin tones, maybe, but the eyes are still recognizable as being by Matt Groening. You know, the characters are all blue collar workers, even though it's set in a future where there's robots and aliens and spaceships. It's still super relatable. Whereas the critic, it, it's centered around human beings, but it completely lacks any of the humanity. They tried to make it look slightly more like a real world, and yet it doesn't feel like a real world. It feels, I mean, or the part of it that does is the part of it you're just like, yeah, but there are people in the real world I like. I, I, I don't like anybody here as much. And it's so it's like, like they, I think they just said, we got to do everything that's not The Simpsons and pacing in jokes in whatever. And then it just, it lost its way in a big way. But you can kind of understand how they got there in that it was too much of a certain thing. I'm not going to say a good thing, but if you look at NBC, which was ruling the roost at that time with must-see TV, where every show is a New York-centric show, but it's still, they were relatable characters where you're always like, well, how can they afford that apartment? Oh, well, I'm not going to look too deeply into <laughs> it, you know? But yeah. like Thursday night, I mean, they had crossover. There was a blackout. So it's like ABC looks at this and they're like, well, people like New York. Let's order this show. But they didn't know what New York they were getting. Like, it's it's like the real thing. There are boroughs. New York City isn't just one monolith. <laughs> so, like, they just kind of went a little too far uptown for this show. Yeah, unfortunately. And I will say, like, you know, I didn't really highlight it because I know I've been posting my critiques in a major way here. But the one thing I will say is the movie parody mashups 
were that's the funniest part of the show like that's the best thing every time you're watching jay's show or every time they flip on a tv to show you you know this latest mashup like it is great and i feel like they really were spot on with that stuff it's just the rest of the show that doesn't work like there's a super cut on youtube where you can just watch all the movie clips and that that's very entertaining it's just when you have to get into everything else where, where it loses its way so i do think it did have its value in that but unfortunately that it wasn't just you know skit after skit of making fun of movies you had to get in between and try to like these characters that they actively work to make us not like so (laughs) i think that that's where i get upset by it but let's say this you know we've identified where the show is failing but now it's our job will we're gonna play the part of meddling network executives we've come down to the set we're gonna pitch our ideas on how to save the show from cancellation we're gonna spice things up for the audience we're hoping we can get this series renewed at least one more season but we're gonna get the show off of life support And that's why they call us the show doctors. Well, how would you retool the critic, whether it's a reboot in this era or at the time? What do you think could have been added, subtracted, changed to make it work? Oh, wow. Because those are two different approaches. But also through this conversation, now I am like, I'm a changed man. They claim that like people don't change their minds, but I, I certainly have. Because when we first talked about it, I would have said I wouldn't change a thing. Like I would bring it back just as it was. I wouldn't add like a new character. I wouldn't tone down anything. I wouldn't change the animation style. I wouldn't even do like a time jump. I would just bring it back. But now you've pointed out like the things that didn't age well and what didn't really work. Well, first of all, to go back in time, if I were to give this show a longer life based on the time period and certain levels of desperation I would have sold it to UPN Ooh. it could have gotten two more seasons on UPN that is for certain <laughs> look at UPN circa 1995 and <laughs> they would have shown it every day <laughs> or the three days they were programming at that time but like that's an easy one but like for today ooh, there's, there's a lot of different angles I would play up the aspect of the irony of the title that I pointed out where it's like Who is he to be criticizing anyone? But I would also throw in how it feels to be rendered obsolete in today's online chud culture where he's not special anymore. Everyone's a critic. Anyone with a following has more sway than he probably has with his TV show at this point, you know, because TV's dying. Like movies, there's strikes, there's streaming like there's a lot of stuff going on in like and i won't even say this is a renaissance like it was in the 90s but it is a milestone in time like things are changing so to watch them change around him would be the show for me right now yeah that would be fascinating a critic trying to survive in this entertainment landscape that's wild okay so what i did though is i said okay it's 1995 it's getting canceled again at fox so where do you take it what do you do with it i blow it up I start from scratch with a new attitude, the name only. We relaunched The Critic on MTV because what movies were cool and popular in 1994 with the MTV generation? Clerks, 
Pulp Fiction, all right? So you're making Jay Sherman a 20-something Quentin Tarantino-style video rental store clerk. He's a movie-obsessed nerd. He's got a bunch of eccentric friends. They're, they're having misadventures. They're trying to break into the movie industry in Los Angeles. So that's kind of, the, you got the younger bent. Jay, I think he has like a cynical Generation X-style public access movie review show, and that's called It Stinks. We haven't even talked about his catchphrase, It Stinks, and Hachi because they just didn't stick. But <laughs> but the movie mashup jokes could still then be part of the formula. But in this case, I say his friends supply like bootleg screener tapes of Hollywood blockbusters about to come out that they procured like for black market dealers in Hollywood, you know? So it's like real grainy, but like they're watching it and it's got the jokes in there. Meanwhile, though, each week we also get to see a clip from like passion project indie movies that Jay and his friends have been making. And those are going to be style parodies of movies from like the renegade auteur filmmakers of the era, like Robert Rodriguez or Wes Anderson, Richard Linklater, Steven Soderbergh, you know, all these young guys who are coming up and kind of changing the landscape. It's kind of like Empire Records meets Wayne's World. It's that style. And then, of course, each episode, you gotta have the soundtrack of hit songs licensed by MTV so they can sell a new soundtrack album of the critic each season, you know? <laughs> There's gonna be some sort of infomercial that plays after each episode so it tells you you could get that soundtrack. But that's where I think it could have lived on MTV for a while. So I don't know. I like that. I like that. And it would be a good like block with Beavis and Butthead with the whole like how they did the music videos. Yeah. Maybe we could license clips from Paramount movies so that like these characters can actually critique a movie that exists. Yeah, that that's a great idea. The the part that scares me is because of the time period, I'm like, Kevin Smith is in here somewhere, even if he's just the gaffer. <laughs> he's involved in this somehow. Yeah, he, he would get himself and Jay like as regulars on the show. They would always be popping in. Yeah, he would be up for it. They, they'd take him up on it, definitely. So yeah, well, I mean, that is the show. I mean, this is kind of our first stab at what we want to do being able to talk TV, getting a little nostalgic, getting deep into a show and breaking it down. Now, look, I came into this with a little bit of an agenda. Not every episode am I coming in trying to change Will's mind on a show he may have remembered liking, okay? I'm not trying to blow up the world, but it, it'll happen. <laughs> the thing I want to uh, mention, though, because not everything we're going to do is going to be a 90s, you know, animated primetime sitcom. We are really going to, across all genres, we want to visit what was going on in the TV landscape in the 80s and 90s. These shows that, again, may have been like in the zeitgeist for their moment and then kind of were forgotten or really hyped but never caught on. Here's a few of the shows that we've outlined that we would like to talk about. I'm just going to throw a few of them out here, but Swan's Crossing. Anybody? Swan's Crossing? Will remembers it. I remember it. We're going to get into that. We also had an idea that we want to talk about the TGIF lineup on ABC because they were always trying out a new series, right? Well, they were always trying to put something into that last block. That 930 death slot of we got to keep them here for 2020. <laughs> and so uh, one of the ones I wanted to talk about from that era that really re uh, reminded me of just like, you're going to get a revamp, you're trying to keep it going, is a show called Baby Talk. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but it's going to be a fun conversation. Now, we also talked 
talked about doing game show type things because there were some interesting tweaks on the game show formula back in the day. And one of those was studs. And <laughs> there was the love connection and there was studs. So we're going to get into what made it different. And also, you know, we're going to get into primetime sitcoms as well as syndicated series. So like a primetime sitcom that I threw out there that I don't even know, Will, do you remember Phenom? Oh yeah, Judith Light's vehicle after Who's the Boss with yep. the girl I don't think went anywhere, but William <laughs> Devane is in it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really interesting experiment. So we'll get into that eventually. Also, The Babysitter's Club is a show I have a, an affinity for. There was that series from 1990. Very interesting vibes on that show. So I don't, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about, but also in animation, right? So there was plenty of animation that wasn't primetime. There were interesting things going on, whether it was, you know, Nickelodeon might have thrown something out there that didn't catch. And so the comic strip is one particular block of cartoons that meant a lot to me that we're going to talk about probably in October for Halloween, the show called Mini Monsters. But, Will, I want to throw it out to you. We could just easily talk about Little Dracula. Do you remember that show? Oh, man, I forgot about that I, show. Uh, maybe we have to do Little Dracula then. <laughs> like, like I, I completely, and you saying it, it all, like, the dust came off. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. That's what this show is about. That's the reaction we're hoping to get from all of you listening. So we hope that you will join us for our next episode. We are going to be monthly right now. So you'd have time to watch a show, to, to seek it out. So I will tell you that the next show that we're going to be discussing is Swan's Crossing. It is available on YouTube. So if you want to go revisit it, I will just tell you, young Sarah Michelle Geller. if you had no interest in it and now you heard Buffy the Vampire Slayer was in that when she was like 12, you want to go check that out, okay? But, well, it's getting late. The National Anthem is playing on the TV screen. There's images of the waving American flag. There's soaring bald eagles. So it's time to wrap up this installment of Remember That Show by telling you where else you can find us between now and next month's episode. So, Will, where can they get in touch with you? Oh, wow. So many places. My website is westweekever.com. I have a segment that used to be weekly. Sometimes it's monthly. But we look at the week that was in popular culture and we decide which person, place, or thing had the West Week ever. On social media, if it's still around, you can find me on Twitter. Not, I'm not calling it what it's called now. <laughs> the Bird app. I am at William B. West. Instagram at William Bruce West. If you're one of those cool, hip, young kids, I'm on TikTok at William B. West. And I'm on everything else as William B. West. Just the only one with Bruce is Instagram. Definitely a good follow he'll give you some takes guys and not just on tv <laughs> he's got them he's gonna share them as for me uh you can find me most everywhere on the social medias at hoju coolander good luck spelling it but you can find me there of course here on the retro network i do quite a bit of work with them whether it's wizards the podcast guide to comics rental return tales from the video store coming back with season four at the end of the year we have a lot of fun things going on on the retro network so mickey and jason thank you for giving remember that show home we recommend that you follow at trn social on all the social medias as well because they are going to be promoting the show it's going to be the best place to find us right now and maybe the show will set up its own social media presence once we find out where everybody's going to be tell your friends and hey until next time
test pattern. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.